As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello there, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. This is the 31st episode of PCPC. And today we're going to be taking a look at two flights. TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718. Two scheduled flights that departed Los Angeles International Airport on the morning of June 30th, 1956. It's currently late March 2021. It's now been one year of living through a worldwide pandemic. There's been ups, there's been downs, mostly downs, but hopefully this experience will provide contrast for the rest of our lives and we'll always enjoy and appreciate life when it goes back to relatively normal conditions. I want to give a quick shout out to the PCPC Patreon crew. The fact that so many of you have stuck with us and supported us through this tough year is very much appreciated. We know that the frequency of our episodes hasn't always been consistent, but your love and support always has. Thank you for being there for us, and I want to let the Patreon crew know that I'm currently writing a Patreon-only episode as a sign of our gratitude. So that should be coming out in the next few weeks and will be available for all tiers on our Patreon page. If you're out there and interested in joining the PCPC Patreon crew, head to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again, guys. On the show today, we're lucky enough to be joined by the current world record holder for longest javelin throw and the future CEO of Lunar Airways, Miss Tessa Andrade. Hello, hello, hello. 
How are you, Tess? I'm great. Thank you for having me on your podcast yet again, Michael. <laughs> um, did you know that in the future that you would be CEO of Lunar Airways? I was going to ask you about that. That sort of tripped me up, but um, I'm I'm proud to be involved in lunar travel. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that you would be part of that, but it came to me one day. I don't know why. Um, I was also thinking about maybe Lunar Airways wouldn't be a good name for a service that took you from planet Earth to the moon. Do you have any ideas of other... Uh, possibilities for a name of that kind of mm, business um, let's see maybe Moonman enterprises i like that that's pretty good i also thought maybe airways isn't correct because i think 95 percent of the journey you're outside of the atmosphere you're just going through space maybe it's space line or spaceway air <laughs> that's a mouthful yes exactly how are you uh, holding up these days what's your status one year into the pandemic oh you mean, you mean single or taken? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm okay. You know, it's been a really hard year, obviously, for obvious reasons. But I'm doing well, actually. I feel like I'm starting to kind of come out of it and feel a little less anxious. And I was just recently vaccinated. So that's really put my mind at ease. Nice. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. I'm taking a microeconomics class just to keep my brain busy and working on future episodes. I just watched a show called The Terror about these British explorers from the 19th century. They get frozen in the uh, Arctic Circle and it was a uh, Really dark. It wasn't exactly a feel-good show, but I thought it was good. Yeah, I actually saw bits and pieces of that show, although I did make the mistake of watching it before bed, which we all know I don't really last long when I do that. Um, but I really liked what I saw. What have you been watching? I've actually been watching a lot of movies lately, I would say. I've been trying to watch some of the Oscar movies, like I saw Promising Young Woman, mm -hmm. And I saw The Sound of Metal, which I really enjoyed. I like that one, too. And next on my list is Minori. Oh. I actually I have a screener for that one. <laughs> Not to brag or anything. Oh, you must be a fancy person in oh, Los yeah, Angeles with screeners. Extremely fancy. Do you have any plans to fly anytime soon? I'm actually planning on visiting my mom for her birthday uh, up in uh, end of March. So nice. in about a week, I'll be setting sail. What airline did you book? I booked Delta because I read that they are still keeping middle seats open. Oh, nice. So well. I decided to do that. I was between JetBlue and Delta. JetBlue apparently has a really good air filtration system. Mm -hmm. And I've just heard generally good things about their pandemic travel. And the other thing about JetBlue is that they let you cancel... Um, your flight for a full refund before some date this spring. I'm forgetting what it was, but that was pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. um, but then Delta had the the middle seat uh, dealio, so that was kind of I couldn't refuse the the, the, the middle space. seat space. Yeah. yeah, some social distancing on the plane. Yeah, well, that sounds good. We're gonna have to stay in touch with you and get you get an update from you on how your first flight is. Yeah, if you want to interview me, um, just get in touch with my people. And yeah, I'll, maybe I'll be able to make time for you. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we're fortunate, Tess, on February twentieth, twenty twenty one, United Airlines Flight three two eight, a scheduled flight from Denver to Honolulu, with two hundred and forty one souls on board experienced a contained engine failure four minutes after taking off from Denver International. A number of cell phone videos were posted online that showed pieces of the plane's engine cowling raining down over Broomfield, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. 
Apparently, the pilots were expecting turbulence to pick up shortly after takeoff, which isn't unusual when you're flying with the nearby Rocky Mountains. At an altitude of 12,500 feet, they pushed their throttles forward to increase power to the engines. When they did this, there was a loud bang, followed by an uncommanded shutdown of the right engine. The pilots quickly declared an emergency, turned the plane around to land back at Denver International. The pilots made the decision not to dump fuel because of safety concerns and time constraints. Captain made a one-engine inoperative approach and landed on runway 26 at Denver International, 20 minutes after the initial engine failure, putting the entire flight at 24 minutes long. Upon inspection after landing, investigators discovered two damaged fan blades, one that was caused by metal fatigue, and another's thought to have been damaged when the first blade broke off and fractured the second. The FAA issued an emergency airworthiness directive calling on all operators of Boeing 777s with Pratt & Whitney PW4000 engines to conduct thermal acoustic engine inspections of the titanium fan blades used in those engines. The FAA recommended that all 777s using PW4000 engines be grounded while the investigation continues. So Tess, the NTSB is currently investigating that incident, but I'm happy that they were able to get on the ground, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I always like hearing stories, not about any kind of issues on a plane, but just hearing that the plane is able to land safely and troubleshoot is always reassuring as a, a anxious flyer. Yeah, I'm happy that no one panicked and I'm happy that the rest of the plane wasn't damaged when that engine started breaking apart. Um, since the 777 was introduced in 1995, there have been 1,657 777s delivered to customers. Only a small fraction of those, 128 of those planes, have the Pratt & Whitney 4000 engines. And almost half of those planes, half of those 128 planes, were in storage anyways due to the pandemic. So they have some time to figure it out. Um, it's kind of interesting that they have this issue, but it's also at a time where passenger demand isn't through the roof. Yeah, that's very true. If ever there was a time to have those kinds of issues, it would be now. Yeah, now they can have some time to figure it out. One more quick statistic before we get to our story today, Tess. TSA reported the screening of over 1.5 million passengers on March 21st, last Sunday, two days ago. That was the highest number of passengers screened in almost a year since the pandemic began. So people are getting more and more comfortable with the idea of flying through the sky right now. Vaccinations are happening. Case totals are going down. People are starting to fly again. How do you feel about that, Tess? Well, I think that more and more people are starting to get the vaccine and that if you're able to travel safely and you are willing to take that slight risk on, then you should do it. Yeah, I think uh, people are getting vaccinated, mask up. They've been at home for a year. If you uh, feel comfortable, go for it. Today's episode of PCPC is brought to you by the good folks at BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's therapy for the 21st century. Let's face it, it's been a rough year for a lot of us. Right now might be the perfect time to start speaking with an objective, intelligent, certified professional, just someone that can check in with you and make sure that you're practicing healthy, positive mental habits, moving towards achieving your goals in life. In the past, if you wanted to see a therapist, there was a car ride, traffic, parking, getting time off work, and other hassles to deal with. 
Through BetterHelp, you can speak with a professional virtually from the comfort of your own home and at a time that works best for you. If you want to learn more and get 10% off your first month, please visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thanks again to BetterHelp. Thank you, BetterHelp. I like to mention at the start of each episode that I'm not a pilot or aviation expert. We started this podcast because we were nervous flyers, and we thought if we exposed ourselves to this topic that we were fearful of, that eventually our nervousness surrounding flying might go down a bit, and we might learn a little something along the way. We never want to be casual or cavalier when talking about these accidents. We realize that what we're discussing is a tragedy in the lives of many of our fellow human beings out there. Someone's brother, father, sister, mother, or neighbor lost their life, and we never want to be insensitive or forget about that fact. We just think that these are historical events that are worthy of our attention and discussion. We enjoy learning how each accident led to modifications and improvements in our air travel system, building it into the successful and safe system that it is today. Tess, you ready to get started? Oh, I'm ready, Michael. Before we hop straight into TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718, I think it's important that we take a long look at how the aviation industry evolved over the first half of the 20th century. In order to truly understand the world of 1956 and the impact that this incident would have on the future of air travel, I think we need to take some time to absorb some history, learn what the industry was like at the start and how it developed over its early years. As I'm sure many of you know, in the early 20th century, travel by airplane was a brand new mode of transportation. It was completely unregulated by the government at the time because it was cutting-edge technology. It had just come into existence. The first scheduled ticketed commercial flight took place on January 1st, 1914. A young 24-year-old pilot named Tony Janis flew a two-person flying boat from St. Petersburg, Florida, to Tampa, flying over Tampa Bay. The first commercial ticketed passenger was a former mayor of St. Petersburg named Abram Feel. On the morning of January 1st, 1914, a crowd of 3,000 people gathered in St. Petersburg to witness the auction of the first ticket and first commercial flight. Abram Feel won the ticket with a winning bid of $400, which is the equivalent of about $10,000 today. The first ticketed commercial passenger, Feel, and his commercial pilot, Janice, boarded the flying boat at 10 a.m. and flew 23 minutes from St. Petersburg to Tampa. Janice flew the plane only about 50 feet above the water, and he actually experienced some engine trouble halfway along the route. He landed the flying boat in the bay, made a few technical modifications, and took off again to Tampa, where another crowd of 3,000 people was awaiting their arrival to cheer this first commercial ticketed flight. This was impressive to the crowds in both St. Petersburg and Tampa. If you had wanted to go from St. Petersburg to Tampa in 1913, you basically had three options. You could drive, but the roads were unpaved, and the hand-cranked automobiles of that era were slow, so your journey could take up to 20 hours. Secondly, you could take the train, go all the way around the Bay Area, which would take less time than driving, but still would take anywhere from 4 to 12 hours. Lastly, you have the steamship, 
which was your third option. The steamship was a two and a half hour journey across the bay, the quickest of the three available in the year 1913. Suddenly in 1914, with this historic flight, you can make it across the bay in 23 minutes. At 11 a.m. on the same morning of January 1st, 1914, Janice and Feel flew back to St. Petersburg from Tampa, completing their round-trip flight in the world's first scheduled airline, the St. Petersburg-Tampa Airboat Line, was born. The airline made two round-trip flights every day, and tickets were sold for $5, around $100 in today's world. The airline only lasted four months because after a few weeks, the novelty had run out. Turns out that in 1914, not too many people had to get from St. Petersburg to Tampa in a timely manner. The people of Florida were like, hooray, we can finally get to Tampa in 23 minutes. Then a few months pass, and the airline says, who wants to pay $100 to go to Tampa really quickly on our plane? And the people of Florida responded, we're good, actually. We're content lounging on the beaches of St. Pete. Thanks, though. The point of the story is ticketed, scheduled, commercial air travel was born. That genie had been let out of the bottle, and there was no going back. As we can all deduce from this early account of the world's first fixed-wing scheduled airline, it took a while for the airline industry to take hold and flourish. From 1914 to 1918, World War I spurred significant developments in airplane design and advancements in aviation technology. Engines were built to be more powerful allowing for an increase in airplane size and overall speed. Planes went from a top speed of 50 miles an hour before the war to 150 miles an hour post-war. Airframes were redesigned for increased maneuverability. At the beginning of World War I, planes in the military were used solely for reconnaissance missions, and pilots would take off armed with nothing but a compass and a handgun, occasionally popping off a few rounds the old-fashioned way if they encountered an enemy. Plane instruments were very rudimentary. There were no radios to use between the air and ground in 1914. Pilots would carry physical maps with them, follow railway lines for guidance, and occasionally they would have to land their plane in a field to ask for directions. By the end of the war, technicians at AT&T had developed two-way radio communication between the air and ground that would later be used by air traffic control in the late 1920s. This massive funding and support for the development of plane design and technology by the combatants of World War I, France, Germany, the United States, and Great Britain helped push the aviation industry forward setting it up for airlines to take root and expand in the post-war years of the 1920s. The airline KLM, that many of you might be familiar with, an airline that's still around today, was founded in October 1919. Qantas, the Australian airline, came into existence in late 1920. The Russian airline that would eventually become Aeroflot was established in 1923, Finnair was established in 1923 as well. The airline that we know today as Delta Airlines had its beginnings in March 1925. And American Airlines history began in April 1926. So these immediate years following World War I saw the birth of many airlines that we know and love today. Granted, an airline in the early 1920s was quite different than the airlines of our current time period. 
There were no 737s or A320s in the sky in the early 1920s. Planes were still relatively slow and small. Many airlines stayed in business by focusing mainly on flying mail, which was light and easier to transport and more profitable than flying people. Thanks to this new mode of transportation in the United States, mail could be flown from coast to coast in two days instead of the typical five days that it took a train at the time. Planes that did fly passengers in the early 1920s had very few seats, typically between two to ten, and the flight experience was very loud and cold. The walls of planes were not insulated, the cabin was not pressurized, and planes flew pretty low at only around 3,000 feet. Nonetheless, by the mid-1920s, the aviation industry realized there were some limitations to its growth and success unless the federal government would step in and start setting up some safety standards so the general public would feel reassured that air travel was a safe and well-regulated mode of transportation. In late 1925, the 30th President of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, appointed a nine-man board led by a Wall Street banker named Dwight Morrow to write a report on the state of civil aviation and offer recommendations as to how the government could aid in its future success and expansion. Many of this report's recommendations were used as the basis of the Air Commerce Act of 1926. Inside the U.S. Department of Commerce, a new aeronautic branch was created from the passage of the Air Commerce Act. Suddenly, the federal government starts playing a central role in the aviation industry. Now planes have to be certified. The aeronautic branch is responsible for determining a plane's airworthiness. Planes had to be registered. Pilots had to get licenses, pass a physical, and they were tested on their flying knowledge. This new aeronautic branch was responsible for establishing airways and building new airports. This branch investigated accidents and enforced air traffic regulations. Air navigation facilities were created to help aid in the safe operation of aircraft. The Department of Commerce took over the construction of a transcontinental lighted airway, allowing planes to fly safely at night using lighted beacons on the ground below to help guide planes through the dark. The airway also offered a number of emergency runways or landing sites and radio stations that communicated weather reports to pilots. So in 1926, the federal government gets truly involved in air regulation, creating a stable foundation, a central structure that an airline industry could organize itself around. Now future passengers could feel more at ease that traveling by plane wasn't some random roll of the dice on Joe Blow's plane service. The government was overseeing some aspects of the safety of their flight. Future passengers could say to themselves, this plane I'm on has been certified and declared airworthy by a government agency. This pilot I see at the controls has had his eyes checked recently. He's been trained, tested, and has an official license. This pilot is going to fly me through the sky in an organized and controlled fashion because the government has established air traffic rules and regulations. So the Air Commerce Act of 1926 set up a framework for the airline industry to develop over the decades ahead, but it didn't immediately translate into an increased number of air passengers flying through the sky. In the late 1920s, airplane technology was still limited, and airlines were focused on making money. The best way to do that was to secure contracts 
and routes to fly airmail, and passenger travel was still on the back burner. But more airlines sprang into existence during this time period, Pan Am in March 1927, Iberia in June 1927, and Hawaiian Airlines in 1929. During the late 1920s, new planes start being designed specifically for passenger travel and to accommodate greater amounts of passengers, signaling that an increase in the number of passengers in the sky was in the near future. The all-metal Ford Trimotor was released in 1926 with a passenger capacity of 11. Pan Am used the Ford Trimotor for its first international flights from Florida to Cuba. The Boeing 80 was released to the commercial market in September 1928 with a passenger capacity of up to 18. The Boeing 80 featured an enclosed flight deck where pilots were separated from the passenger cabin. There was a toilet and hot and cold running water available. The Boeing 80 could be flown at 14,000 feet, so planes in the late 1920s are growing larger. They can accommodate more passengers and fly at higher altitudes. There's a more comfortable flight experience, so we're inching towards developing the planes necessary to make flying people a profitable business. Still, the airline industry is very much focused on flying mail. In 1926, 800,000 pounds of mail were flown in the United States. Three years later, in 1929, almost 8 million pounds of mail were flown in the United States. So in the late 1920s, airlines exist, but they're still very much focused on flying mail because that's the quickest way to make a buck. Just to highlight the difference, in 1926, only 6,000 passengers flew in the United States. Flying by plane was still a very expensive, somewhat uncomfortable, and rare activity for most human beings. But as the 1930s approach, this decade would go on to be the decade where passenger air travel would finally become a profitable enterprise for airlines. As I mentioned, 6,000 passengers flew in the year 1926. In the year 1934, just eight years later, 475,000 passengers flew. 1938, almost 1.2 million people flew in the United States. Though the population of the United States was around 130 million in 1938, which means that still less than 1% of Americans were flying, that's some staggering growth for 12 years. 1926, you have 6,000 passengers. 1938, you have 1.2 million customers. So what drove this growth? Well, the planes for comfortable passenger travel were finally there. In 1933, Boeing released the Boeing 247. Passenger capacity remained low at 10, but the flight experience was much improved. Female flight attendants served passengers. The cabin had air conditioning, and it was soundproof, so it was much quieter and pleasant for my fellow flyers. The plane flew at almost 200 miles per hour, which is a drastic improvement compared to the pre-World War I 50-mile-an-hour planes. So flying in this plane was a much smoother and faster ride than flying in the 1920s. Now the Boeing 247, in my opinion, is more important for what it inspired than what it actually was. There's an interesting story that when Boeing first releases the 247, they promise the first 60 aircraft to their own airline, basically. Boeing Air Transport, that would eventually become United Airlines. In 1933, all airlines want to buy this Boeing 247 so they can compete with other airlines for customers. And Boeing says, no, 
we're giving the first 60 to our own airline. So the president of TWA, Jack Fry, is pissed. He calls Don Douglas, founder of the Douglas Aircraft Corporation, says, Bro, Boeing is totally playing unfair. They're hooking up their own airline with all these state-of-the-art planes, and my airline can't compete. Make me a new plane so my airline isn't held at this permanent disadvantage by Boeing. Well, thanks to Boeing's move of cutting off other airlines from having initial access to this 247, Douglas Aircraft Corporation designs the Douglas DC-1, which is later used to create the DC-2 in 1934, and the all-important DC-3 in 1936, which absolutely revolutionizes the airline industry. DC-3 absolutely creams the competition. So let's talk about the DC-3. What made it so special? Well, the DC-3 had a range of 1,500 miles and could fly over 200 miles an hour. This means that human beings in the 1930s can suddenly fly from New York to Los Angeles quicker than they had ever been able to before. In a little over 18 hours, and stopping only three times to refuel, passengers could fly from one coast to the other. This is quite an advancement in travel, considering a coast-to-coast train ride used to take people several days. So the DC-3 was fast, efficient, and the passenger cabin was quiet so passengers could relax and not have to shout at each other if they want to have a conversation. The plane featured retractable landing gear and powerful engines. DC-3 was reliable and economical. It had a reputation with pilots for being a forgiving plane, a plane that was easy to fly. It dealt with icy conditions or turbulence like a champ. With your Boeing 247, you could fly around 10 passengers. Even the DC-2, which in 1934 could fly faster than any other plane in the commercial market, it only accommodated 14. With the DC-3, passenger capacity finally ticked up to 21. The president of American Airlines in the 1930s, C.R. Smith, said of the DC-3, it was the first airplane in the world that people could make money just by hauling passengers. Passengers loved the comfort of the DC-3. The sleeper version of the plane allowed for 14 passengers to enjoy the comforts of a bed and sleep as they were flown through the sky. Flying on a DC-3 was a luxurious experience, with flight attendants serving passengers elegant steak dinners and classy cocktails. The beds featured feather mattresses with goose-down comforters. Passengers woke up in the morning and were served coffee and blueberry pancakes. It was a beautiful five-star classy experience that people dreamed of one day enjoying. So how successful was the DC-3? Let's look at some of these numbers. In 1938, 95% of all commercial air traffic in the U.S. occurred via DC-3s. 95%. DC-3 was so successful that even United Airlines, that as you remember was basically an offshoot of Boeing, United Airlines buys 15 of the planes in 1937. It's kind of like a car rental company owned by the Ford Corporation purchasing a bunch of Chevys. Just another testament to what a great plane it was at the time. European airlines like KLM purchased the DC-3 as well. In 1939, 90% of world commercial air travel was operated by DC-3s. This plane absolutely dominated and revolutionized the airline industry, basically made flying human beings through the sky a profitable activity for the first time. 
Combining its civil and military orders, over 16,000 DC-3s were built since it was introduced in 1936. So in summary, in the 1930s, the commercial passenger airline industry finally starts becoming a profitable business thanks to the DC-3. Wealthy people that can afford air travel enjoy the comforts of the plane and the speed of air travel. Pilots like the plane because it's easy to fly. Airlines like the plane because they can finally make some money. So passenger air travel is finally growing throughout the 1930s. So now let's take a moment to look at how government involvement in the aviation industry changed and responded to this growth. As we discussed earlier, in 1926, the Air Commerce Act was passed through Congress, and the aeronautic branch was created under the Department of Commerce. Well, that aeronautic branch was renamed in 1934 to the Bureau of Air Commerce. As we just learned, there was an expansion of commercial air travel in the 1930s. In 1935, this new Bureau of Air Commerce told airlines, look, there's more planes in the sky. It's getting pretty crowded up there, so you guys need to set up some air traffic control centers. So airlines set up three centers in Chicago, Cleveland, and Newark to handle and direct air traffic. These centers were pretty primitive. Controllers used maps and blackboards to chart where they thought planes would be headed in the sky. Though it was basic, it was a start to try and improve air safety. In 1936, the Bureau of Air Commerce took over responsibility for these three control centers from the airlines, and these centers were federally operated. Local officials still operated direct communications with pilots in the sky via radio, and they ran their own control towers, but the federal air traffic controllers ran the three control centers and were in communication with these local officials at the airport towers. In 1938, the Civil Aeronautics Act was passed through Congress. The main author in the Senate of the Civil Aeronautics Act was a Democratic senator from Nevada named Pat McCarran. If you've flown into Las Vegas, you'll notice that the airport, McCarran International, is named after Senator McCarran. Senator McCarran secured federal funding and land for the airport and also got the Civil Aeronautics Act through Congress. This act created a new federal agency to oversee civil aviation in the country called the CAA, or Civil Aeronautics Authority. The CAA took over aviation oversight responsibilities that were previously under the control of many different groups inside the government. The Bureau of Air Commerce, Post Office, and Interstate Commerce Commission. Prior to this act, the government's power over aviation was decentralized, with many players involved. Now there would be a centralized agency in charge of all things related to civil aviation. There was a lot of suspicion of corruption in the 1920s and 1930s as to how airmail contracts were approved to airlines. Some people thought that during the Hoover administration that airmail contracts were handed out as favors to supporters, and that there wasn't a fair competitive bidding process where all airlines could compete equally, and then the government would grant the contract to the cheapest bid. Well, now the CAA would take over all government responsibilities for civil aviation, investigating accidents, managing postal contracts, regulating the airlines, approving routes, and overseeing airfares and safety. Two years after this, in 1940, the CAA was divided into two agencies, the Civil Aeronautics Administration and the CAB, the Civil Aeronautics Board. 
The CAB handled economic regulation of airlines, air safety rulemaking, and investigation of air accidents. The new CAA focused on enforcing those air safety rules, maintaining air traffic control, pilot licensing, aircraft certification, and airway development. In 1942, the CAA took over control of air traffic control towers at airports. used to be that they ran the control centers and let the local officials run their own airport towers. Post-1942, the CAA controls the centers and the airport towers as well. Recapping again, I know it's a lot of information, but just to simplify, from 1914 to the early 1940s, the airline industry was born slowly grew larger over this period of time with the development of faster and better designed planes that made flying in a plane a more comfortable experience for passengers, and government involvement in the industry expanded and evolved as well, helping to organize an infrastructure, organize how planes and passengers could fly through the sky. Government helped put the airline industry on solid footing to continue their growth and flourish in the years ahead. So we started with the first ticketed commercial flight in 1914. Now we're caught up to the early 1940s. In 1941, just so you can keep a gauge on the growth we're observing over these early years of the airline industry, in 1941 there were 3.8 million passengers flown across the United States. 6,000 people flew in 1926. 1938 saw 1.2 million. 1941, 3.8 million. The industry tripled in size between 1938 and 1941, just three short years thanks in large part to the DC-3. So right as the industry was blossoming in the early 1940s, airline business was better than ever before, another massive world event showed up and affected the trajectory of the industry. World War II broke out across Europe in 1939, and the United States joined the war in late 1941. So what impact did World War II have on the airline industry? Well, once again, another world war pushed ahead technologies that would improve airplane design in the decades to come after the conflict. Pressurized cabins had been experimented with by aircraft manufacturers like Lockheed and Boeing in the 1930s, but they hadn't really been widely used commercially. During the war, the Americans developed the B-29 Superfortress, which was a massive bomber plane that used a pressurized cabin, allowing pilots to fly high above the weather, breathe inside the plane without oxygen mask, be protected from the cold, and fly out of range from enemy anti-aircraft guns on the ground below. So pressurized cabins was a big step forward for the future commercial plane market. Next, World War II was the first war on planet Earth where planes with jet engines were used. Since it was a relatively new technology that had yet to be perfected due to issues with high temperatures that arise inside of jet engines, very few jet engine-powered planes were used in the war, but the technology was improved upon, and aircraft manufacturers after the war would be the beneficiaries of this advance in aviation technology. Avionics systems were improved during World War II, allowing pilots to fly blind or fly by relying solely on their instruments. Airplane design advanced, lighter metals were used in construction of planes like aluminum alloys, and the maneuverability of planes increased. To aid in the war effort, countries built many airports and airfields for military use during the war. 
after the war, these airfields are just sitting around, and they were converted and utilized for civilian air transportation purposes. Lastly, and this is the big one, radar became widely used during World War II. Radar is an acronym for Radio Detection and Ranging. During the war, it allowed the military to see where enemy planes were in the sky above, or where exactly their own planes and pilots were flying. After the war, the CAA used radar in airport towers to help organize the arrivals and departures of commercial flights. Radar allowed air traffic controllers in airport towers to have a more precise location for the planes in the surrounding skies, help them keep planes at a safe distance from each other while they were above the crowded airspace above airports. So cabin pressurization, jet engines, radar, new airports, new lighter, more maneuverable planes in design, better avionic systems. These are all pushed further ahead during World War II. After the war, aircraft manufacturers and the airline industry benefit from these advances. Planes can fly at higher altitudes, higher speeds, and this increases the value of air travel to potential passengers. So what do these advances in aviation technology and new expansion of infrastructure lead to? Further growth in the airline biz. There's a dip in passenger air travel during the war years as airlines and their fleets were enlisted to aid in the war effort. But in 1945, the year the war ends, there's an uptick in passenger air travel and almost 6.5 million passengers travel by plane in the U.S. The following year, 1946, that number doubles to over 12 million. Six years later in 1952, that number doubles again. 25 million people flew in the U.S. in 1952. And in 1956, the year of the incident that we're going to be talking about today, there were 41.7 million passengers. So those are some dramatic growth numbers. In the post-war years, planes grew in size and speed, as we can recall from earlier about the 1930s and how that decade was dominated by the introduction of the DC-3. Well, in 1947, Douglas Aircraft Company introduced the DC-6, a modernized descendant of the DC-3, part of the DC family, so to speak. The DC-6 had a passenger capacity of 68, much higher than the first standard DC-3's 21. The DC-6 had a cruise speed of over 300 miles an hour. The cabin was pressurized, allowing flight at higher altitudes, and the DC-6 had four engines compared to the DC-3's two engines. The new engines on the DC-6 were twice as powerful as the DC-3's engines, Six years after the DC-6 is released, in 1953, the Douglas Aircraft Company released the DC-7. DC-7 could accommodate up to 95 passengers. The DC-7 was the first airliner that could fly nonstop from New York to Los Angeles, flying west into the wind and making that transcontinental journey in eight hours. The DC-7's cruising speed was 360 miles per hour, and its four engines had almost 25% more horsepower than the DC-6. So we've gone from the mid-1930s, where a standard DC-3 could accommodate 21 passengers and fly between the coasts in 18 hours with three stops to refuel, which was impressive at the time, 
to the mid-50s, where a DC-7 can accommodate 95 passengers and fly non-stop between the coasts in eight hours. It's a pretty impressive evolution for 18 years, right? Throughout the late 1940s and early 50s, planes are still growing larger, can accommodate more passengers, fly them farther and faster. The experience of riding on an airplane is more comfortable. Cabins are pressurized and soundproof so passengers can have pleasant conversation and relax. Cabins have air conditioning and flying by plane is becoming a very attractive and time-efficient alternative to traveling by train or car. One thing we really haven't discussed so far is the price of tickets. We talked about how the first ticket ever auctioned off back in 1914 in St. Petersburg was the equivalent of $10,000 in the present day. How much did a ticket cost in the 1930s or the 1950s? Well, in the 1930s, a coast-to-coast round-trip ticket cost around $260 at the time or $4,000 at the present day, adjusted for inflation. So flying by plane was very expensive, out of reach for the common man in the 1930s. By the 1950s, that price had come down significantly, but it was still quite costly to fly by plane. In 1955, you could fly round trip from Boston to Los Angeles and back for the equivalent of just over $2,000 at today's value. A one-way ticket from Los Angeles to Kansas City was around $700 at present day value. So between the 1930s and 1950s, prices had been halved and the flight experience was faster and more comfortable, but it was still very costly to fly by plane in the 1950s. For the most part, it was an activity that the upper classes enjoyed, or a rare and cherished experience that a middle-class family had to save up for over a long period of time to be able to afford. Another figure that I found interesting during my research was the number of planes in the sky over the years. In 1936, there were 280 aircraft in service with domestic airlines in the United States. So across the entire country in 1936, there's only 280 commercial planes in the skies. In 1954, 18 years later, that number is 1,175. Over 18 years, the collective size of airline fleets increased by almost 420%, over four times as many planes. That's a substantial increase in air traffic that we should all keep in mind when thinking about our incident today. So now we're finally caught up to 1956, the year of the incident that we're going to be talking about today. I think it's been important to set the stage and understand what flying was like in 1956 and the journey that the aviation industry had taken alongside the federal government to develop and grow over its early years. So just to briefly summarize all we went over, because I know it was a lot, I have eight main points. Number one, the first scheduled ticketed commercial flight was in 1914 over Tampa Bay, which established the first commercial airline that ran regularly scheduled flights. Two, World War I pushes airframe design and engine power forward and two-way radio communication is developed. Next, after World War I in the 1920s, airlines started being founded, but they mostly focus on flying mail because planes are small and engines aren't powerful enough to fly heavy human beings efficiently and profitably through the air. Number four, in 1926, the federal government gets involved in the industry with the Air Commerce Act. Planes get certified, pilots are licensed, some safety standards are established. 
Number five, in the 1930s, the DC-3 revolutionizes the industry. Airlines can finally make a profit flying people. There's an initial explosion in air travel, but it's still very expensive and only for the super rich. Round trip tickets are $4,000. Number six, in 1938, the Civil Aeronautics Act passes through Congress, which leads to the creation of the CAA and eventually the CAB. Government involvement in the airline industry is centralized under those two bodies. There's air traffic control around airports and control centers, but the control centers are pretty basic. Number seven, World War II leads to improved engine capabilities, lighter plane materials, cabin pressurization, better avionics, and radar. Radar is used after the war at airport control towers, monitoring the airspace above airports, but not really expanding beyond airports. Financial constraints prevent radar from being established over the areas between airports nationwide. And lastly, number eight, in the 1940s and 1950s, planes are further developed. Planes are faster, larger, carry larger amounts of passengers, but it's still a luxury in life. It's expensive, but getting slightly cheaper over time, and more people are flying than ever before. More planes are in the skies above than ever before. Now armed with the knowledge of where the industry was in the 1950s, let's get to our two flights that we'll be discussing today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. United Airlines Flight 718 was a scheduled flight from Los Angeles International Airport to Chicago's Midway Airport on Saturday, June 30, 1956. The plane used for Flight 718 was a Douglas DC-7. We just discussed the DC-7 during our history overview. As you'll remember, the DC-7 was the first plane that could fly from the East Coast to the West Coast, into the wind against the jet stream and make that trip without stopping to refuel. The DC-7 had four piston-powered engines and had a cruising speed around 360 miles per hour. The standard DC-7 could accommodate 95 passengers. The DC-7 was the first commercial plane to use titanium. 
which was a lighter metal than steel, and was also heat resistant. One interesting feature of the DC-7 is that at the back of the plane, there was a lounge where about five people could sit around on a U-shaped leather bench, intermingle, get away from their seat for a moment, and smoke a cigar or have a classy cocktail. The DC-7 was introduced to the commercial market with American Airlines in November 1953. A total of 338 DC-7s, including all variants, were built between 1953 and 1958 by the Douglas Aircraft Company. The DC-7 used for Flight 718 was delivered to United Airlines on January 10, 1955, so the plane had been in service with United for about 18 months. The DC-7 used for Flight 718 had 5,115 flight hours, and the plane was named Mainliner Vancouver. The captain of Flight 718 was Captain Robert Shirley. Captain Shirley was 48 years old at the time of the incident. He was hired by United Airlines in July 1937, so he had almost 19 years with the airline. Captain Shirley lived in Palos Verdes Estates, just south of Redondo Beach, only a short drive away from LAX with his wife and daughter. He was an athlete in high school back in Fresno, California. Captain Shirley became a captain in November 1940. He flew the DC-7 once it was integrated into the United Fleet in May 1954. Captain Shirley had 16,492 flying hours and 1,238 hours in the DC-7. The first officer of Flight 718 was First Officer Robert Harms. First Officer Harms was 36 years old and had been with United Airlines since February 1951. He flew as a captain on DC-3s. First Officer Harms had 4,540 flying hours, 230 hours on DC-7s. The flight engineer on Flight 718 was Flight Engineer Gerard Fiore. Flight Engineer Fiore was 39 years old at the time of the incident. He was hired by United Airlines in March of 1948, initially employed as an airplane mechanic. Flight Engineer Fiore became a flight engineer three years later in 1951. He had 2,670 flying hours, 285 on the DC-7. There were two flight attendants and 53 passengers on United Flight 718. Adding the three officers in the cockpit, there were 58 souls on board for Flight 718. Our second flight we'll be focusing on today is TWA Flight 2, a scheduled flight from Los Angeles International Airport to Kansas City, Missouri on the same morning of June 30th, 1956. The plane used for TWA Flight 2 was a Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation. The 1049 Constellation part of the Lockheed Corporation's Constellation family, was developed as a plane that could compete for market share with the Douglas DC-6B, a plane that could carry up to 89 passengers. The 1049 was a stretched version of Lockheed's XC-69 Constellation. The 1049 came in different seating layouts that could range between 69 on up to 109 passengers, depending on how much cargo space was desired by the airline. This propeller-driven airliner had four 3,250 horsepower engines and a larger fuel capacity than its predecessors, allowing for a range of over 5,000 miles. 
The most iconic element of a constellation plane was its triple tail, meaning the tail of the plane had three vertical stabilizers, those things that looked like shark fins on the back of the aircraft. When the first constellation was released commercially in 1945, Douglas DC-3s dominated the market. The hangars that airlines stored their planes in had relatively low clearance because the DC-3s were pretty low to the ground. The Constellation, which was a massive propeller-driven plane with four engines, needed higher landing gear. And if they designed the plane with only one vertical stabilizer on the tail, it would have been too tall to fit inside of the hangars that many airlines used at the time. It would have been a tough sell to airlines. Hey there, buy this new plane, but you're going to have to build a brand new hangar to store it. Sorry about that. So instead, Lockheed went with the three smaller vertical stabilizers, the triple tail, and gave its new plane its iconic element. The L-1049 was introduced to the commercial airline market in December 1951 with Eastern Airlines. This particular plane used for Flight 2 was one of 10 super constellations that TWA had as part of its fleet. There were only 24 original L-1049s built by Lockheed. TWA had 10 of them, and Eastern Airlines had the other 14. Counting all the civilian and military variants of the L-1049, Lockheed built 579 super constellations in the seven years between 1951 and 1958. The plane used for Flight 2 was delivered to TWA on May 22, 1952, and had 10,519 flying hours, so this was only a four-year-old plane at the time. The plane was named Star of the Seine. The captain of Flight 2 was Captain Jack Gandy. Captain Gandy was 41 years old at the time of the incident. He was hired by Transworld Airlines in December 1939, so he had been with the airline for the previous 16 and a half years. Captain Gandy, a Navy pilot in World War II, had flown the Los Angeles to Kansas City route 177 previous times. Born in Rothville, Missouri, Captain Gandy lived in the Kansas City area with his wife and four children. He had 14,922 flying hours, 7,208 hours on the L-1049, so Captain Gandy was very experienced. The first officer of Flight 2 was First Officer James Rittner. First Officer Rittner was 31 years old, and he had been working for TWA for the previous four years, since June 1952. The First Officer lived in the Kansas City area with his wife and three young children. He was born in Shenandoah, Iowa in 1925. First Officer Rittner had 6,976 flight hours, 825 hours on the L-1049. The flight engineer for Flight 2 was Flight Engineer Forrest Brayfogel. Flight Engineer Brayfogel was 37 years old at the time of the incident. He was hired by TWA in October 1945. Born in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1919, Flight Engineer Brayfogel lived in Alton, Illinois, just north of St. Louis, before later settling in Kansas City. He had a wife and two young children. Flight Engineer Brayfogel had 7,896 flight hours, 7,237 hours on the L-1049. Almost 92% of his official flight hours were on the L-1049. There was an off-duty flight engineer on board Flight 2, Flight Engineer Harry Allen, based out of Los Angeles, and two flight attendants. 
There are 64 passengers, one off-duty flight engineer, two flight attendants, and three officers in the cockpit for a total of 70 souls on board TWA Flight 2. On that Saturday morning, June 30th, 1956, the first officer of United Flight 718, First Officer Robert Harms, shows up at LAX earlier than almost anyone else that would end up being on either plane we're talking about today, either Flight 2 or Flight 718. Why was First Officer Harms at the airport so early? Well, First Officer Harms was scheduled to be flying on a different plane for United that morning. The First Officer was scheduled for work on board United Flight 732, a flight from LAX to Chicago departing at 7.30 a.m. When he arrives at the airport, he's met with the news that he can't legally fly or work aboard Flight 732. You see, it's June 30th the last day of the month, and there's a law at the time that commercial pilots can only officially work 85 flying hours per month. First Officer Harms has accumulated a little over 79 flying hours so far in June 1956, so he only has five and a half hours left to stay under this legal allowance. He was scheduled to fly the 7.30 a.m. flight to Chicago that was going to use a DC-7, that could fly from L.A. to Chicago in five and a half hours and keep him under his limit. But when he gets to the airport, he's informed that there's an issue with the DC-7, and instead, the airline's going to use a DC-6 for that flight, Flight 732, which is slightly slower. The DC-6 takes six hours to fly L.A. to Chicago, and since he's already over 79 hours, he can't legally fly that plane because it would put him over that 85-hour threshold. The airline decides to bump First Officer Harms to a flight later in the day, another scheduled DC-7 flight to Chicago, United Flight 718. Flight 718 is scheduled for departure at 8.45 a.m., one hour and 15 minutes after Flight 732 takes off. So First Officer Harms has to wait around in the dispatch office for the rest of his new crew to show up. Around 7.30 a.m., the flight crew for TWA Flight 2 arrives at their company dispatch office to look over their flight plan, approve the fuel load, select their alternate airport, and read weather reports for the day's flight route. The crew discovers that the super constellation they'll be flying today has some minor mechanical issues that are being tended to. These repairs are going to cause a short delay, and they'll be taking off a bit past their scheduled departure time, which was 8.30 a.m. For United Flight 718, Captain Shirley and Flight Engineer Fiore arrive at the airport and meet up with their newly reassigned First Officer, First Officer Harms, and they go over their flight plan and weather reports as well. Around 8 a.m., a tractor brings the Super Constellation with its recently completed repairs to the back of the TWA terminal building, where the pilots, flight attendants, and passengers will eventually board. In 1956, LAX was a much different airport than it is today. It was much smaller, and there weren't jet bridges running from the terminal to the door of the aircraft. When it was time to board, passengers walked out the back of a terminal building, into the open air, walked along a chain-link fence before passing through the gate to the main parking apron for planes and climbing the stairs to board their aircraft. At 8.30 a.m., the time TWA Flight 2 was supposed to be taking off, 
both flight engineers for Flight 2 and Flight 718 are performing a walk around of their respective planes. Just a quick visual inspection to make sure the plane looks good, that it's in good working condition. As the pilots are doing their pre-flight check, the boarding call is made in the TWA and United Terminals for TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718. Passengers for each plane exit the terminals, walk across the parking apron, and walk up the stairs to board their aircraft. As passengers are streaming onto the plane and settling into their seats, the flight attendants aid passengers with their small luggage and hang coats in the coat closet. The skies were overcast in Los Angeles on the morning of June 30th, 1956, and the air was around 69 degrees a little before 9 a.m. The plan for TWA Flight 2 was to take off from LAX and fly under IFR, instrument flight rules, to a series of checkpoints in the sky above CAA-run communication stations located on the ground below. The first checkpoint to the northeast of Los Angeles was Daggett, California, and then Flight 2 was going to fly direct to Trinidad, Colorado, followed by Dodge City, Kansas, and eventually end up at its scheduled destination of Kansas City, Missouri. The flight plan called for a cruising altitude of 19,000 feet, and a true airspeed of 270 knots, around 310 miles an hour. For our other flight, United Flight 718 was on an IFR flight plan that would direct them initially a bit south compared to TWA Flight 2. Flight 718 would fly to Palm Springs, then direct to Needles, California, fly above the Painted Desert, then to Durango, Colorado, followed by Pueblo, Colorado, St. Joseph, Missouri, Joliet, Illinois, and eventually end up at Midway Airport in Chicago five and a half hours later. The DC-7, a faster plane than the Super Constellation, was scheduled to have a true airspeed of 288 knots, around 330 miles an hour. Flight 718's flight plan called for a cruising altitude of 21,000 feet. After completing their checks and getting the passengers buckled in, TWA Flight 2 is the first plane to start taxiing away from the terminal shortly before 9 a.m. United Flight 718 follows a few minutes afterwards. TWA Flight 2 takes a few minutes to make their way to the top of runway 25 right at LAX and then holds in position as United Flight 718 crosses the runway in front of them. After Flight 718 finishes crossing the runway, a local controller radios, TWA-2 cleared for takeoff, contact departure radar on 1211 prior to Del Rey. At 9.01 a.m., 31 minutes after its scheduled time of departure, on June 30, 1956, TWA Flight 2 blasts down runway 25 right at LAX, and the Super Constellation lifts off into the mid-morning sky en route to Kansas City, Missouri, with 70 souls on board. The pilots of TWA Flight 2 radio over to the Los Angeles Tower radar departure controller and are guided through a layer of overcast clouds in the Los Angeles area. Two minutes after taking off, as the L-1049 finally breaks through the cloud layer at 9.03 a.m., the pilots of TWA Flight 2 radio over that they're on top on top of the cloud layer, at an altitude of 2,400 feet. The super constellations flying over the Pacific Ocean, just west of the runway at LAX. 
While Flight 2 is climbing in the sky, the pilots of United 718 radio over to the tower at LAX. United 718, ready for takeoff. The tower responds to Flight 718, telling them to hold for a few moments and to get in position for runway 25 left. Three minutes after Flight 2 takes off, at 9.04 a.m., United Flight 718 blasts down runway 25 left, and the DC-7 lifts off into the skies above LAX, headed out above the Pacific Ocean, following a similar departure route as TWA Flight 2. United 718 has 58 souls on board and radios into the tower controller a few minutes later at 9.06 a.m. to report that the DC-7 is on top of the overcast layer at an altitude of 2,900 feet. So at 9.06 a.m., both Flight 2 and Flight 718 are airborne. Above the overcast layer in Los Angeles, Flight 2 took off three minutes ahead of Flight 718. The superconstellation used for Flight 2 is going to be turning to the northeast towards Daggett, California, while the DC-7, Flight 718, will be headed more directly east towards Palm Springs. Remember, the DC-7 took off a few minutes after the Super Connie, but the DC-7 is the slightly faster plane. As we mentioned earlier, both flights submitted a flight plan to fly under IFR, Instrument Flight Rules, where the pilots would rely on air traffic controllers to guide them and ensure separation with other air traffic. In the mid-50s, it was commonplace to get approval to switch mid-flight from IFR and fly VFR, visual flight rules, especially in the uncontrolled airspace between airports. If you remember from our little history overview, in the 50s, the entire country wasn't blanketed with radar. Air traffic controllers didn't know precisely where every plane was at every moment. Control centers were pretty archaic compared to what they are today. If a pilot wanted to change altitude or get clearance to change his flight plan, the pilot would radio an airport tower or company dispatch, which would then radio the CAA managed control center looking for approval. Pilots generally didn't communicate directly with a controller that would be granting or rejecting their requests. It wasn't a very efficient way of communicating, but as we can recall from our look at the history of aviation, it was a work in progress. System had worked good enough so far, so it was the system that was in place in this moment. When pilots would get approval to switch from IFR to VFR, they'd fly under a see and be seen rule. Stay out of clouds and fly in clear airspace. They'd use their own eyes and judgment to keep separation with other aircraft, and planes would end up straying off of official airways. If you remember from the bio, Captain Gandhi, the captain of TWA Flight 2, had flown this route 177 times. The man was familiar with this trip. At this point in the airline industry, tickets are still pretty pricey, but getting cheap enough that the common woman or man could save up over several months to a year to get to experience the wonder of flight. Pilots like Captain Gandhi and Captain Shirley had to be aware of the fact that some people on the planes were shelling out some serious cash to get this first experience of air travel. To make it worth their while, pilots would often try and fly over impressive areas below once they were out of the controlled airspace and got approval to fly VFR. Like tour guides in the sky, pilots might get on the intercom and say, 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you look out your window to the right now, you can get an excellent view of one of the seven natural wonders of the world, the Grand Canyon. In 1956, these planes were flying 20,000 feet off the ground, not 35,000 like today. So passengers would get a stunning view of the Grand Canyon, and this would add to the mystique of their flight experience, making them feel like spending their hard-earned dollars on this flight was worth it. They can tell their families about how they got to see the Grand Canyon from the air and will forever be a journey that they'll remember. So back to our flights. Shortly after 9 a.m., both planes are in the sky. Flight 2 is headed to the northeast. Flight 718 is headed east. TWA Flight 2 has a slight route change en route to Daggett. Originally, they were going to take two different airways to reach Daggett, but Flight 2 gets approval for Airway 210, a more direct path this saves them a few minutes. At 9.21 a.m., 20 minutes after taking off, the pilots of TWA Flight 2 contact their company radio dispatch, telling them that Flight 2 is approaching Daggett, California, climbing through 14,000 feet, and they request a change to their eventual cruising altitude from 19,000 to 21,000 feet. It is not known why they request this change, but it may be because there's clouds in the area and Captain Gandhi wants to get above them, or he's anticipating weather in the future and just wants to be prepared to get over the weather. TWA Company Dispatch contacts the CAA Control Center in the area and relays Flight 2's request. While the pilots of Flight 2 are awaiting a response to this initial request, they radio in a second request with their company dispatch to fly 1,000 feet on top of the cloud layer if their first request for 21,000 feet was not approved. The control center tells TWA company dispatch advisory TWA2 unable to approve 21,000. The TWA company dispatch then says, just a minute, I think he wants 1,000 on top, to which Los Angeles center control responds, ATC clears TWA2, maintain at least 1,000 on top, Advise TWA2, his traffic is United 718, direct Durango, estimated needles at 0957. The company dispatch radios the approval and notice of traffic to Flight 2, and Captain Gandhi responds, traffic received. So TWA2 is denied clearance for 21,000 feet, but granted clearance to stay 1,000 feet above the clouds. Captain Gandhi climbs his L-1049 towards 21,000 feet, 1,000 feet above the cloud layer, but the exact altitude he was just denied, and the same altitude that United 718 is climbing towards to his south. So as you can see, this is a pretty inefficient way of communicating. The pilots of Flight 2 make a request, then another request on top of their previous request, They do this through a middleman who then communicates with Los Angeles Control Center that doesn't have radar or a precise idea of where this plane is at. Los Angeles Center actually talks to another center in Salt Lake City to decide whether to approve the request. And they communicate approval of the second request to company dispatch, which relays it back to the pilots of Flight 2. In the end, Flight 2 ascends towards the altitude 21,000 that they were denied in the first request because that's where flight 718 is supposed to be. The time is now 9.32 a.m., 31 minutes after takeoff, and that whole communication between flight 2, company dispatch, and L.A. control center takes 11 minutes to hammer out. 
While TWA Flight 2 is trying to get their request for altitude change approved, Flight 718 is flying to the east and climbing to its assigned altitude of 21,000 feet. At 9.37 a.m., United 718 radios that the DC-7 is still climbing, currently at an altitude of 18,000 on its way to 21,000 and passing over Palm Springs. At the Palm Springs intersection, United 718 makes a left turn, heading to the northeast towards one of their checkpoints in the sky above Needles, California, along the way to Chicago. So currently it's around 9.40 a.m., 39 minutes after TWA Flight 2 took off from LAX, and 36 minutes after United 718 took off from the same airport. TWA Flight 2 is flying to the east from Daggett, headed direct to Durango, Colorado, and United 718 is flying northeast from Palm Springs towards Needles. 18 minutes pass, and at 9.58 a.m., United 718 radios over that the DC-7 is now at its planned cruising altitude of 21,000 feet. They're currently above Needles, California. The pilots of Flight 718 radio that they estimate that they'll be crossing the Painted Desert Line in about half an hour at 10.31 a.m. The Painted Desert Line is a line that runs between the VOR station at Winslow, Arizona, up to another VOR station at Bryce Canyon, Utah. One minute after this radio transmission from United 718, TWA Flight 2 radios to TWA Company Dispatch that the Super Constellation crossed Lake Mojave at 9.55 a.m., was currently at an altitude of 21,000 feet, 1,000 feet on top of the cloud layer, the same altitude that United 718 just reported, and had an estimated time of crossing the Painted Desert Line at 10.31 a.m., the same estimate that United 718 just radioed out. So roughly one hour after takeoff, both planes are flying in the skies above northern Arizona at the same altitude, 21,000 feet, and both flight crews estimate that they'll be crossing the Painted Desert Line at the same time, 10.31 a.m. TWA Flight 2 is currently located to the north of United 718, but United Flight 718 is the DC-7, the faster plane, and it's headed towards Chicago, flying at a sharper angle to the northeast, while TWA Flight 2 is flying to Kansas City, flying at a less severe angle towards the northeast, almost east-northeast. Both planes are flying through uncontrolled airspace. Once TWA Flight 2 passed through its last checkpoint at Daggett and United 718 passed through its last station over Needles, both planes entered uncontrolled airspace. We don't know for certain, but there's a strong possibility, since this was a fairly commonplace activity at the time, that once both planes entered this uncontrolled airspace, that both flights start straying to the north a little bit, away from the most direct flight path, so the pilots can give their passengers a unique view of the majestic Grand Canyon located below. There were no more radio transmissions from TWA Flight 2. In 1956, flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders did not exist, so what follows was pieced together by investigators and the evidence. Around 10.30 a.m. on June 30, 1956, United Flight 718 slammed into TWA Flight 2 at an altitude of 21,000 feet while both planes are flying above the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona. 
Investigators believe that in the final moments before the impact, the pilots of United Flight 718, flying the DC-7, see that the collision is about to occur. They see TWA Flight 2, the super constellation, to their left, and they bank their DC-7 hard to the right, lifting their left wing and pushing the controls forward to try and dive below the L-1049 to their left. Unfortunately, they were flying too fast and too close to the Super Connie, and the left wing of the DC-7, with propellers spinning, slams into the rear fuselage of TWA Flight 2, completely severing off the iconic triple tail of the Super Constellation. This causes an immediate explosive decompression on TWA Flight 2, and clothing and magazines shoot out of the back of the plane and fall to the shores of the Colorado River below. The triple tail of the L-1049 falls into the Grand Canyon below, and the front of the Super Constellation enters an almost vertical dive, reaching speeds of almost 500 miles per hour before crashing into the ground near the base of Temple Butte in the Grand Canyon at an elevation of 3,400 feet. Upon impact, there was a massive fire fueled by aviation fuel, and all 70 souls on board TWA Flight 2 died instantly. The impact of the two planes heavily damaged the DC-7's left wing and number one engine, significantly reducing the plane's power and lift capabilities. At 10.31 a.m., a radio transmission was received by aeronautical radio communicators in San Francisco and Salt Lake City, sent by First Officer Robert Harms from the flight deck of United 718. The communicators couldn't understand the message when they received it. But upon playback and analysis, it was determined that First Officer Harms says at 10.31 a.m., Salt Lake, United 718, uh, we're going in. In the background of the recording, investigators believe that Captain Shirley was recorded either saying, pull up, pull up, or come up, come up. United Flight 718 struggles to stay in the sky, enters a left spiral, and eventually slams into the side of an 800-foot cliff of Chuar Butte in the Grand Canyon. All 58 human beings on board United Flight 718 are killed instantly. Between the crew and passengers on both TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718, 128 people lost their lives due to the mid-air collision above the Grand Canyon on the morning of June 30, 1956. Company dispatch communicators and control center employees began to worry about the planes once 10.30 came and passed, and neither plane radioed to update their status and location. Both planes were expected to cross the Painted Desert Line around 10.30 and radio to confirm that they had done so. After attempting to contact both planes on multiple frequencies, the CAA issued a missing aircraft alert at 11.51 a.m., one hour and 20 minutes after the mid-air collision had taken place. Two brothers, Palin and Henry Hudgen, who operated scenic flights above the Grand Canyon, did a flyover the area during the evening hours. One of the brothers had heard that a crash might have occurred that day, and he recalled seeing some smoke coming out of the canyon while he was flying in the late morning hours. The brother thought that the smoke was from a brush fire at the time, but after hearing the reports, he gathered his brother and flew back to where he had seen the smoke. While performing a low pass in the area, the brothers were able to identify the tail of the super constellation on the ground in the canyon below. 
The following day, July 1st, 1956, Air Force and Army helicopters flew rescue missions under hazardous flying conditions to search for survivors. Medics were on board these flights, and it became apparent after observing the wreckage and crash sites that there would be no survivors. The wreckage for TWA Flight 2, the Super Constellation, was generally concentrated in one area. So this clued investigators into the fact that the plane must have crashed into the ground at a very steep angle. Several pieces of the DC-7's outer left wing were found at the main crash site of the Super Constellation in surrounding area, which led investigators to conclude that the left wing of the DC-7 must have been where the DC-7 had struck the L-1049. The main wreckage site for the DC-7 was located 1.2 miles to the northeast of where the Super Constellation wreckage was, near where the Colorado and Little Colorado Rivers connect. When investigators pieced together the evidence, they theorized that the pilots in the DC-7 must have seen the Super Constellation to its left at the last moment and banked the plane hard right while pushing their controls forward, trying to get underneath and avoid the collision. Unfortunately, the planes were going too fast, and the United 718 pilots saw the L-1049 too late, so they didn't have enough time to react to prevent the accident from occurring. Again, because the DC-7 was banked hard to the right, the left wing of the plane was raised, and the left wing clipped the rear of the Super Constellation, slicing off the triple tail of the Super Connie and sustaining heavy damage to the left wing of the DC-7 as well. The pilots of the Super Constellation probably never even saw the DC-7 since the DC-7 impacted them at the rear of the plane. So a big question is, why didn't the DC-7 see the Super Constellation earlier? How did these massive planes get so close to each other without either of them noticing the other? Well, there's no definite answer to this question. All investigators could do is make their best guess based upon the evidence. In the accident report, there's a paragraph on an interview that was conducted with another captain that was flying in the area around the time of the mid-air collision. This captain was flying at 19,000 feet, 25 miles south of the accident site, passing through the sky a few minutes after the accident occurred. The captain stated that he saw several towering cumulus clouds in the area and estimated that their height reached up to 25,000 feet. Also in this interview, this other captain said that there was an overcast layer in the area that occasionally had breaks in it with excellent visibility below these breaks in the cloud cover. Therefore, some have theorized that one reason the DC-7 might not have seen the Super Constellation was that both planes were passing around one of those large cumulus clouds that the captain in the interview was referring to. Maybe the super constellation was flying around one of these cumulus clouds that went up to 25,000 feet on the north side, and the DC-7 was passing around the same cloud on the south side. The cloud blocked each plane from getting a visual on the other, and as soon as the DC-7 rounds the last of that cloud, to its surprise, there's a massive L-1049 to its immediate left. They don't see the plane until the very last moment, they're traveling at 330 miles an hour, too fast, with too little time to avoid a collision. Another theory, based upon the fact that there was an overcast layer in the area with breaks in the cloud where you could see the canyon below, 
is that maybe both flight crews were distracted by trying to navigate their planes into a place where passengers could see the Grand Canyon through one of the gaps in these clouds. Maybe this took their attention away from monitoring the skies for air traffic. In the end, the CAB accident investigation report listed the probable cause as follows. The board determines that the probable cause of this mid-air collision was that the pilots did not see each other in time to avoid the collision. It is not possible to determine why the pilots did not see each other, but the evidence suggests that it resulted from any one or a combination of the following factors. Intervening clouds reducing time for visual separation, visual limitations due to cockpit visibility, and preoccupation with normal cockpit duties, preoccupation with matters unrelated to cockpit duties, such as attempting to provide the passengers with a more scenic view of the Grand Canyon area, physiological limits to human vision, reducing the time opportunity to see and avoid the other aircraft, or insufficiency of en route air traffic advisory information due to inadequacies of facilities and lack of personnel and air traffic control. So how did the Grand Canyon mid-air collision of 1956 make flying safer for us all today? Well, in July 1956, this was a shocking event for the public to absorb. The fact that 128 lives could so quickly be snuffed out in an instant was very unsettling to people. It was the most deadly commercial airline crash in American history at that moment in time, In the end, it was a major event that spawned dramatic changes in how our air control systems work. As we learned earlier in the episode, government involvement and government expenditures in regulating the airline industry grew in uneven ways alongside this new and expanding business. World wars forever changed the industry. Advancements in plane designs forever changed the industry. And now a widely publicized Mid-air collision where 128 human beings lost their lives would forever change the industry. The government and airline industry came to the realization that large commercial planes flying hundreds of passengers faster than ever could no longer fly through uncontrolled airspace. That was an unsustainable practice going forward. Prior to this crash, It was accepted that in the busy airspace above airports surrounding cities, planes would be guided by an air traffic controller to ensure separation with other aircraft. But once those planes were outside of this controlled airspace, it was common for pilots to meander off of airways, fly under visual flight rules, and find interesting areas below to show off to passengers on board. The 1956 Grand Canyon mid-air collision made the industry and government realize that these practices needed to end and that the nation's air traffic control system was insufficient to meet the needs of an expanding, changing industry. On August 14, 1957, Congress passed and President Eisenhower signed the Airways Modernization Act, which established the Airways Modernization Board, which was responsible for the development and modernization of the national system of navigation and traffic control facilities to serve present and future needs of civil and military aviation. The Airways Modernization Board was to select such systems, procedures, and devices as would promote maximum coordination of air traffic control and air defense systems. Following the Airways Modernization Act of 1957 came the Federal Aviation Act of 1958. 
This very important piece of legislation was signed on August 23, 1958, and created a new agency, the Federal Aviation Agency, later renamed the Federal Aviation Administration in 1966, which we all know today as the FAA. The FAA took over the regulatory powers that the CAA had been in charge of. Most of the safety regulation and enforcement powers that the CAB had been responsible for were also transferred to the FAA. The CAB continued to investigate accidents until that responsibility was transferred to the NTSB in 1967. Funding was appropriated to modernize air traffic control centers and create a national radar system, which would allow air traffic control to organize the flow of air traffic and ensure separation between aircraft across the entire country. The FAA took over control of military activity in addition to civil aviation. More air traffic controllers were hired and trained. Flight rules were reformed. Now all commercial traffic flying above 18,000 feet must fly instrument flight rules and commercial planes are positively controlled. Flight data recorders, cockpit voice recorders, anti-collision alert systems, weather radar systems, all these advancements in safety originated in a way from this horrible accident in 1956. So as sad as this incident was and is, it led to massive changes that dramatically improved air safety. Now the entire nation is blanketed with radar. Gone are the days where a pilot radios to company dispatch and company dispatch talks to a control center that's using a chalkboard to plot out where their best guess is on where planes are in the sky. Gone are the days where commercial planes stray from airways while pilots look for interesting sights below. This incident led to the creation of the FAA and eventually the NTSB, agencies that would constantly help and prioritize and ensure air safety. The FAA and the airline industry developed a process to constantly self-correct and build the air travel system into the fine-tuned machine that it is today. I just want to mention that there's an excellent book out there that I use as part of the research for this episode. It's called We're Going In, the story of the Grand Canyon disaster by author Mike Nelson. If you'd like a more in-depth look at this incident, I'd advise you all to check it out. Now let's bring in Tess. Tess, what did you think about the story of the 1956 Grand Canyon mid-air collision? Was there anything in the history section or the accident section that really jumped out at you that you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I really enjoyed the little history lesson that you gave us. And by the way, have you ever thought about going into teaching? Because you really broke that down pretty well. I think it must be from my class. I'm just watching lectures <laughs> all the time. So, so you're used to <laughs> When it comes to talking, I'm like, oh, I'll just pretend I'm a teacher. <laughs> well, you did a really good job. Um, I was really fascinated by the evolution of the airline industry and and also just how far we've come since this incident how how much more sophisticated airline travel is today i felt like the accident was definitely a result of a lot of coincidences that added up to just really bad timing yeah like the fact that flight two took off a couple minutes before flight 718 and happened to be just a little bit slower than flight 718. Yeah. And then also just the fact that both planes happened to be flying at the exact same altitude, very close to one, one another is obviously a coincidence. Yeah. Another 
coincidence was that the first officer who was supposed to be on another plane, but because of his hours had to fly on one of the planes that crashed. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't really have to do with the flight crashing, but it, it is a strange coincidence. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that TWA was delayed at all. It was supposed to take off at 830 and because they had these mechanical issues, they had to hang out for an extra half an hour, and that put them closer to Flight 718. So I right. think you're right. There's a ton of coincidences that just added up to these planes being in the same spot. Another strange coincidence is just that the, the planes were right next to one another, that they literally saw each other on the ground at LAX and then yeah. happened to crash into one you're another. right that's a good point to bring up because i thought that was a really eerie moment that mm-hmm. flight two sitting at the top of the runway waiting to take off and they have to watch united 718 cross in front of them and i'm sure at the moment it wasn't eerie because they didn't know it was going to happen eventually but the fact that they saw each other in that moment and then an hour and a half later saw each other for an instant mm-hmm. one question i had was if both planes had reported their altitude why didn't someone flag that? Yeah, I think that's what I kind of had down for discussion that we could talk about the four main players or factors in this incident. And one of the players I had is air traffic controllers. And there is a moment where TWA says, I'm at 21,000 feet. And that was a moment where it could have just entered their brain. Whoa, like this guy radioed in. A while ago, said he wanted 21,000 feet. We told him no. We told him he could be at 1,000 on top. But now he's reporting that he's at 21,000 feet. I think it was like over Lake Mojave at 9.55 a.m. That was a moment where somebody could have been like, ding, 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 like something's up. This guy's at 21,000 feet. United Flight 718's at 21,000 feet. They both are saying they're going towards the Painted Desert. That was an opportunity that was missed. But I think they thought in their mind, hey, once they're out of controlled airspace into uncontrolled airspace, they can figure it out. There's not a ton of planes in the sky. They can look out their window. They're probably not going to run into anything. Maybe because he's a thousand on top too, they're thinking, hey, the height of the clouds will change. And maybe, you know, he's just riding the top of the clouds. I think that was another coincidence I wanted to talk about too, is just the role that weather played in this, that if uh, flight two takes off, and they don't see any clouds, don't expect any clouds, they probably just stay at 19,000 feet the whole way. That the fact that there were clouds, he wanted to get above them, also clouds might have prevented them from seeing each other. Um, Yeah, no, I I agree. Weather was another thing that came up for me as one of those coincidences, and definitely seems like it played a role in them not seeing one another, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if they were flying with visual flight rules. Yeah. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was how Flight 2 made that request about climbing to 21,000 feet Mm -hmm. and then were denied. And then they asked to climb 1,000 feet above the cloud cover. Yeah. And it ended up being, correct me if I'm wrong, but it ended up being the same 21,000 feet. Yeah, but they were approved. Yeah, I don't think we know that they were at this exact altitude the entire time, Uh but they did report at Lake Mojave, we're at 21,000 feet. And I was going to ask you, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, is what you thought was the most consequential moment of the incident, the one opportunity that they could have been like, hey, something's up. 
And that seems like the moment that led to the incident was him saying, give me 21,000 feet. They say no. And then he asked for a thousand on top, which in the end becomes 21,000 feet. The exact same thing he was denied. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's my question to you. Do you think that that was the pilot's error or, or was that air traffic control's error in denying and then approving the request. I think it was a flaw in the system, so arguably neither of their faults. Oh, I'm always looking on uh, the behalf of the people working, and I don't think anybody intended to crash a plane that day. That was just a flaw in the system that, hey, once you're getting into uncontrolled airspace, you can switch to visual flight rules. We know you're probably going to meander and take people you know, to look at the Grand Canyon and you can look out the window and you're probably going to see if a huge plane's in front of you and not run into it. I, I think this was just kind of two needles in a haystack that ended up touching and that's, you know, the crash that happened. But it, I think uh, a lot of bad things in life are opportunities to learn. You know, when 9-11 happened, we learned that our security wasn't good enough. When this pandemic happened, we learned that we have flaws in our healthcare system and we need to be more prepared for future pandemics. And in 1956, this crash was, hey, your air travel system is pretty poor. That's what I tried to show during the history lesson was how suddenly there's 1,200 planes in the sky. And in the 30s, there were, I think, like 260 planes in the sky. And there wasn't really a corresponding growth to government regulation. They didn't have a ton of funding coming in to have the entire nation blanketed with radar, that things were good enough. An accident like this didn't happen. Um, so it took an accident like this to occur mm -hmm. to people to be like, whoa, there's actually a problem. Like we are like woefully unprepared to safely get people through the sky. Totally, totally. I, I completely agree with that. I got the same thing that like it was this very defining moment in airline history where we all had to kind of reevaluate where we wanted to go in the future. Yeah. I think another huge thing is the large number of casualties. I don't think I really communicated enough in the story, but this was a huge deal in 1956 that people were horrified when they found out that 128 people with a snap of a finger were just killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just the imagery of it, like it's, it's pretty, um, iconic in a way like in addition to the body count the incident is almost cinematic you know these two planes crashing into one another above the grand canyon yeah. is something that's going to just be seared into people's minds yeah that is very an, an iconic event and it seems really dramatic and you're right cinematic is great too mm -hmm. uh, another thing that i found really interesting which your history lesson actually helped me kind of contextualize was that air travel really started out as this like rarefied event where only the most elite got to fly and it was literally like winning the lottery mm -hmm. um, to be the first passenger in the skies and it evolved with wartime, with, you know, changing technology in both world wars. Mm -hmm. And this incident is really like the last vestige or one of the last vestiges of air travel as like a vacation in itself. And the pilot as like a tour guide of the skies. Yeah. 
um, just the fact that, you know, we think that both of these planes may have flown north to see the Grand Canyon is, is very telling of how flying was back then. Yeah, that it was this glamorous experience. It's really interesting. Uh, one of the lectures in my microeconomics class, the teacher talks about the deregulation of the airlines in 1978 and how prior to 1978, the government set the price for fares and you know said, you airline, you get to fly this route, this other airline, you get to fly that route, this is what you're going to charge. And airlines could only compete with each other based upon quality, the quality they would bring to people. So they pulled out all the stops. You know, They'd bring nice drinks and steak dinners and excellent service and excellent uniforms because the only thing they could compete with each other on was quality, the quality of service that they give to their passengers. Mm -hmm. And once the deregulation happened in 1978, suddenly they competed on price. And now mm -hmm. we have kind of the Greyhound experience that we have today where... You just pack people in and you don't get anything for free and you're lucky if somebody smiles at you mm. <laughs> that no longer are airlines motivated to say, we're going to give you, we're going to compete on quality. Now they just compete on, Hey, you can fly across the country for 80 bucks. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. And then the flip side of that is that there are now more regulations in place that make it so that you can't pull out all the stops. You can't fly over the Grand Canyon or... <laughs> do i don't know true you know, like do a hula dance yeah on the flight there was a uh, one more thing i want to talk about one thing that struck me while i was doing the research for this episode was just realizing i don't think it ever crystallized in my brain how new flying is how new airlines are i thought about my grandpa that was born in 1908 and he would have been, you know, 28 years old when the DC-3 comes out. That must have been quite a shock to people that lived in the early 20th century. That, hey, we can all go to this little strip of concrete and pile into this cylindrical metal container and go 20,000 feet up in the sky. Like, that seems kind of crazy. I know we've had, you know, the internet and smartphones has probably been the thing that has affected us mm -hmm. the most in our life. That... We grew up without something, and then all of a sudden something comes in and it really shakes up life. But I, I don't know why. I, I feel like 100 years, relative time is kind of not that long, and airlines are basically 100 years old. Yeah, I had the same thought where I thought about my grandparents and was wondering if if they ever flew on a plane, because I, I actually don't think that they did, but I've never thought to ask. Yeah, I guess in those early days, not a lot of people flew on planes. I think like 1% of the population, you had to be super wealthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, flying in the 30s was like taking a private jet today. Mm -hmm. Not any, nobody I know, I don't do that. So. No, I take private jets all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't make the kind of sweet cheddar that you do. <laughs> yeah, it just sucks to be you, Michael, <laughs> sucks to be you. A CBS News article that I found online told the story of Ray Cook, a boy that was 12 years old at the time of the incident. His father, Leon David Cook Jr., was a passenger on board United Flight 718. Ray said that he remembered his family huddling around the TV that night, watching the news and waiting for information on what happened. Reporters stayed outside their home that night in Detroit. Ray Cook said the crash destroyed his family. His mother died in a car accident when she drove off an embankment 14 years later after a night of drinking. His brother committed suicide at the age of 37. Ray Cook dealt with heavy drinking um, for 25 years of his life before finally getting control of his addiction. He said in an interview, 
I used to think every night that my father would walk out of the Grand Canyon, sunburned and scraggly, saying, they screwed up. I'm fine. Here I am. It's pretty sad. The crash site of TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718 became a national historic landmark on April 22, 2014. If you visit the Grand Canyon and drive along the border of the South Rim, there's a road named Desert View Road. As you travel down Desert View Road towards the east exit, there's a point where the Desert View Watchtower stands. This viewing area looks out over where the Colorado and Little Colorado Rivers meet, close to where the crash site is. There's a plaque there that reads, This tragic accident site represents a watershed moment in the modernization of America's airways, leading to the establishment of the Federal Aviation Administration and national standards for aviation safety. This site possesses national significance in commemorating the history of the United States of America. Not too far from the Grand Canyon South Rim Welcome Center is the Grand Canyon Pioneer Cemetery. There's a gravestone with the names of 29 victims from United Flight 718 listed. In Flagstaff, Arizona, at Citizen Cemetery, 66 of the 70 victims of TWA Flight 2 were buried. There was a mass funeral held on July 9, 1956 in Flagstaff for the victims of Flight 2. Just some interesting side notes from my research. In January 1943, during World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became the first American president while in office to fly on a plane for official business. FDR flew on a Boeing 314 flying boat to Casablanca in Morocco to meet up with Winston Churchill for a meeting. Oh, just a meetup with Winston yeah. in Casablanca. The flying boat flew a number of legs from Florida down to Brazil and then over to Africa, up the coast of Africa till they got to Morocco. So it's a good trivia question. Who was the first sitting president to fly in a plane? The answer is FDR. I'll keep that in mind for the next trivia night. Yeah, you should. Tess, I thought you'd find this interesting. There's a Connie at TWA Hotel at JFK Airport. And I'm not talking about a young woman named Connie. <laughs> I know what a Connie is. There's a Lockheed L 1649 Starliner, the final model of the Constellation planes, known as the Connies. It was refurbished and turned into a cocktail bar that sits outside JFK <gasps> Airport. Oh, we've looked at pictures of yeah. that. It's called the Connie Cocktail Lounge. At one time, the plane was part of the TWA fleet in the late 50s. It was part of the Alaska Airlines fleet in the 60s. Now it's a bar at the TWA Hotel. I know we talked about it in the past about the TWA Hotel, but it never crystallized in my brain that the plane was a Constellation plane. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, we've looked at pictures of the interior. I think we checked out the cocktail menu at one point yeah. to see if there was anything we might want to order. Yeah, I would like the world to go back to normal and go to JFK Airport at some point soon. Also, if there's anyone out there listening who's been to the TWA Hotel write to us so yeah. that we can interview you because I would love to hear what it's like. Exactly. I thought that I would point out that Senator Pat McCarran, the senator that Las Vegas's airport is named after that I mentioned, McCarran International, we talked about his role in the 1938 Civil Aeronautics Act. Well, apparently he wasn't such a great guy. It's become widely publicized that Senator McCarran expressed racist and anti-Semitic views. In light of this, the county board in Las Vegas announced in February 2021 that they will be removing his name from their airport. The airport will be renamed Harry Reid International Airport, and the name change will happen in the next couple of months. Fine with me. 
Well, I think that's going to do it for TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718. Tess, are you ready for our quick vocab words for uh, episode 31? I'm ready, but I did hear that there might be a quiz. There is a quiz, and I uh, hope that you do well. I'm not sure I'm ready for that part. Uh, We'll be quickly touching upon two words today, nettle and recalcitrant. Our first word, nettle, spelled N-E-T-T-L-E, can be used as a noun or an adjective. As a noun, a nettle is a small plant with stinging hairs that can sometimes cause an irritating rash. Nettle is also a verb. To nettle means to annoy or bother. So let's say you're on a plane. It's a red eye. You're trying to catch some serious Z's, but the person behind you on the plane is intoxicated. They keep kicking your seat, talking really loudly, keep trying to engage you in conversation even though you're trying to sleep. You could turn around to them and say, hey you, stop nettling me. Synonyms of nettle are annoy, irritate, offend, displease, upset. So that's nettle. Uh, Can I try using it in a sentence? Yes, go for it. Okay, here goes. Michael spent his entire day off nettling me. Yes. I think that's a, that's a great usage of it. Our second word is recalcitrant. Recalcitrant is spelled R-E-C-A-L-C-I-T-R-A-N-T. Recalcitrant can be used as an adjective or a noun. As an adjective, recalcitrant means resisting authority, refusing to be compliant or obedient. For instance, if you're a flight attendant and you're working on a plane full of college students heading to Cancun on spring break, and this group refuses to listen, they won't keep their seatbelts on, they keep leaving their bags in the middle of the aisle, they won't put their tray tables up for landing, you'd probably get pretty frustrated and eventually find a fellow flight attendant and say, boy, we sure have the quite the recalcitrant group on board today, am I right? Yeah, that, that'll really work if you want to <laughs> not bond with the flight attendant at all and alienate them with your big vocabulary. Recalcitrant can also be used as a noun, meaning a person with an uncooperative attitude. So that flight attendant could say to her coworker, I can't wait till all these recalcitrants deplane. So <laughs> <laughs> Synonyms of recalcitrant are defiant, disobedient, refractory, willful, ungovernable, unruly. So that's recalcitrant. Tess, are you ready for your quiz? As ready as I'll ever be, Michael. I'm going to read a sentence and you tell me if I'm referring to recalcitrant or nettle, which are actually both pretty close in meaning, so this might be a little bit difficult. Okay. While the captain tried to focus on flying the plane, his first officer kept asking his opinion on baseball how his love life was going, and then started singing a never-ending version of Jingle Bells. Nettle. Correct. The flight attendant repeatedly asked the young boy to stay in his seat, but the child refused to listen and insisted on doing multiple cartwheels down the middle aisle of the plane. Recalcitrant. That's good. That's all done. Does that mean I get an A? You got an A. Tessa, you ready for a few stories from the world of airline news? Sure. Southwest Airlines has added 17 new cities since the start of the pandemic. The airline recently announced that they'll be expanding service to three new cities, Eugene, Oregon, Bellingham, Washington, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly said recently, I'm very grateful that we have opportunities to generate more customers and generate more revenue. 
We've got all these planes and we're paying for them or have paid for them. They're just sitting on the ground, so it's costing us money. It's an opportunity to tap into new revenue sources. New customers or even existing customers have new trips to take. But if you take a Dallas to Houston classic Southwest bread and butter market, it serves no purpose right now to add any flights in a fully mature market like that. These are all cities that were on our list before the pandemic. We just didn't have the capacity to add them to our network. Now we do, and there will be permanent additions, and has made a meaningful contribution in terms of reducing our cash burn. One of the new cities, Bellingham, is located 50 miles south of Vancouver, Canada. Apparently, a number of Canadians like to cross the border and fly out of Bellingham to get cheaper fares and avoid taxes. So, Test Southwest has been hurting financially from the pandemic, but that hasn't stopped them from expanding into new cities. They've cut down on some major routes and added to others. Smart move by Southwest, or do you think we'll be reading about how they've pulled out of these new markets in the years ahead? I think it's a smart move. I think that Southwest is is doing well. I've been watching it in the stock market, and they seem to be recovering a bit. Yeah. Seems like they're doing the best they can to kind of just be a malleable airline. They're saying, hey, we don't need more flights between Houston and Chicago, so let's uh, take these planes that we got and put them in other places. Just out of curiosity, because I've never seen a small Southwest plane, I looked it up, and their entire fleet consists of nothing but 737s. And what's really funny is that their current in-service fleet consists of 737 737s. Wow, that's so beautiful. Such symmetry. Yeah. 57 of those planes are Boeing MAX 8 planes, which they've been flying since March 11th. So be careful out there. That's not ominous at all. Yeah, I'm just joking. I'm sure it's a quality plane. Tess, last Friday, the FAA announced that it had proposed a $14,000 penalty on a passenger in regards to an incident that occurred on board a JetBlue flight on December 23rd, 2020. The flight from JFK to the Dominican Republic was forced to turn around and land back at JFK after a passenger refused to keep his mask on, kept drinking his personal stash of alcohol after being repeatedly told by flight attendants to stop, Passenger also reportedly kept crowding other passengers on the plane despite being told to maintain his distance. I guess you could say this passenger was being a... Recalcitrant. Exactly. Anyway, there's a 30-day window for the passenger to respond to this proposed penalty. Tess, is $14,000 too much or too little for this type of infraction? Mm, That's a really tough question. I think it's, it's definitely a lot of money. Yeah. But um, given the gravity of the pandemic, I feel like he, he kind of had it coming. Yeah, it's like the, two days before Christmas. I would be so upset if I, during a pandemic, I'm already anxious about flying. I'm on a plane. We're an hour to the destination. We have to turn around because someone wants to get drunk on the plane and won't listen to people. That would be, I know it's a stressful time out there, but that would be very upsetting. So I've always thought fines should be relative to the amount of money you make. If you make a ton of money, maybe $15,000 isn't anything to you. To me, $15,000 is a ton of money. And I feel like they should look at your tax return and it should be a percentage of your previous year's Mm. income. I think that would be more fair. British Airways is considering using some of its larger planes to service short-haul flights to Spain and Greece later this spring. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has indicated that May 17th may be the day that foreign travel is allowed to resume in the UK. 
British Airways has canceled service to many of its previous international destinations since the pandemic began. The airline announced that previous service to Calgary, Pittsburgh, Lima, Peru, Seoul, South Korea, among a few other destinations, would be permanently canceled. The airline has several large planes in its fleet, Boeing 777s, 787s, and Airbus A350s. These planes used to service those canceled long-haul flights. Well, now these planes are just sitting around, unassigned to any route, and British Airways is anticipating that the British people will want to get away to Greece and Spain during the summer months. They might want to do so in large numbers. So the airline's thinking about using these wide-body aircraft to help get people to their summer vacations in a few months. Tess, don't you wish you could go to Greece right now? You read my mind, Michael. I was just dreaming about being on Mykonos with a string bikini on. Yeah, it sounds pretty sweet to me. I hope that a number of our British listeners get vaccinated, wear masks, socially distance for a few weeks beforehand, and then go down to Paros or Noxos or Santorini and enjoy some warm fun in the sun because you guys have earned it. For our final story today, airlines have been cracking down on emotional support animals on board planes ever since the Department of Transportation gave them the green light in December 2020. American, United, Delta, Alaska, and Southwest Airlines have all instituted a ban on emotional support animals, cherished pets that used to fly free. Currently, properly trained service animals are still allowed to fly free on planes, but now many airlines charge $125 a fee for any pet to fly with its owner. The pet must be in a kennel and fit under a seat, otherwise Rover will have to be thrown straight into the cargo hold. One interesting statistic that I came across is that 56% of Americans would rather fly next to an animal than a toddler, which makes me want to ask you, Tess, Should toddlers be forced to fly in the cargo hold as well? Maybe the dogs can stay in the main cabin, but the toddlers need to go below. What do you think? Absolutely. And if not in the cargo hold, then at least in a crate. Yeah. Can you imagine bringing your child on board a plane and the flight attendant stops you and says, Excuse me, ma'am. I'm going to have to tag that child and throw him below. Rules are rules. Unless, of course, that child is an emotional support child or a service child <laughs> in which they can stay for a small fee. Yeah, 125 bucks. Does it fit underneath the seat? Okay, they could stay. Uh, it would be nice if they just set up like a ball pit in the cargo hold and just throw babies in there. Sure, <laughs> sure they'll be fine. Airlines expect to collect $60 million in pet fees a year with the new emotional support animal ban. So we might have finally tapped into the real reason this ban occurred. Another way to make some money during a tough period of uh, financial difficulty for the airline biz. What do you think, Tess? Absolutely. I think that it's become more and more common for people to fly with their animals. So I'm sure the airline thought this is an opportunity to capitalize. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's going to do it for the 31st episode of PCPC. I'd like to thank our producer and guest, Tess Andrade. Tess, you want to say something to the people? Thank you so much, people. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to all of our patrons. And thanks to everyone who writes in. We love reading your emails. We read every single one. And it makes us want to keep making episodes. Yeah. I want to say thanks to the Patreon crew. New uh, Patreon-only episode coming out very soon. Thanks to BetterHelp. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash pod. We're on Twitter at Pod. Instagram handle for some weird reason is Plane Crash Podcast. One year, people. We made it one year through this pandemic. 
Just put your head down and keep on pushing. Check in on your friends and family. Make sure everybody's doing okay. Be kind to yourselves. Make sure you're exercising, getting good sleep, eating enough healthy food. Don't spend too much time staring at screens. Read some books, do some puzzles, listen to some killer tunes. Hopefully we're starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel. Either way, keep up the faith and I hope you all stay healthy. I'm going to crank out another episode as soon as I can. Thanks so much for listening. I love you guys. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.